0: You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. This is the first Sunday of Lent 2023. What is Lent? Well, Lent is where we journey with Jesus to the cross, Good Friday. We don't just think about and meditate on the cross one day of the year. There's a whole season set apart to meditate on the journey of a cross-shaped life. And really, that's something we ought to reflect on all the time, every day of the year. So we're journeying with Jesus to the cross, not only contemplating the meaning of the cross for our own salvation and forgiveness and all of that, but also the meaning of the cross as it pertains to a pattern of living that we're called to. Jesus says, count the cost, take up your cross and follow me. So we're called to live a cross-shaped life. And it always begins with the temptation narrative, which is what we're going to start with today. And what we're going to do at the end of our service, if you were here last week, you'll know that we're going to end our service today with communion together. And we're going to be doing that each Sunday of Lent leading up to Good Friday. But we're going to do it a little bit differently. If you weren't here last week, I need to explain, just to give you courtesy. We're not using uh, the plastic packets. We are inviting you to come forward for communion. There will be two people. My wife and I will be here on the left. Once again, Jason and Dana will be here on the right. Cassandra and Doug will be in the balcony on the, in the back, in the middle. And so in a, in, after the service, after we're ready, when we're ready, once everybody's in place, you just come right on forward, row by row, starting with the front. As soon as we're in place, don't wait for us to say anything, just come forward, row by row, and you're going to take a piece of the bread, it's, it's pre-cut bread, gluten-free bread. I don't want to hear anybody whining about gluten-free. <laughs> I just talked about denying yourself and living a cross-shaped life. You can, you can eat a little piece of gluten-free bread. And you're going to take a little piece of that bread you're going to dip the end of it in the cup not the entire thing just just the end of the bread we want to be as sanitary as possible but you're going to take the bread dip it in the cup and you're going to partake and then you'll circle back to your seat and that's how we're going to share in communion i just think that's uh as meaningful as it gets when we share from a common loaf in a a common cup, and that's about the best sanitary way to do so. And it just brings so much more meaning. We got a bunch of great feedback from our communion experience last week, so we're going to continue in that, okay? All right, Clarity in the Wilderness is the title of the sermon. And the text is Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Let's look at it together. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to, them, to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Amen. So Jesus is about to launch out in his ministry. For something like 25 to 30 years, he's been living a very quiet, obscure, virtually unknown life, a hidden life, in a tiny little village in northern Israel called Nazareth. He's been working as a common laborer, a merchant, not a merchant, but a a craftsman of some sort, working with stone, perhaps with wood, but they didn't have a lot of wood in Israel. They would typically construct things out of stone, so he's working as some kind of craftsman. And then at some point, his older cousin John uh, launches his own preaching ministry, and he becomes quite well-known in Israel. He's kind of this bizarre figure feeding on locusts and wild honey and carries himself in a disheveled way, but he's living out in the desert in, in southern Israel, in Judea, And it's out there where John has this unique ministry of water baptism. And at some point, Jesus goes out to John in Judea. And he is baptized by John in the muddy waters of the Jordan. And then, following his baptism, Jesus does not go immediately back home. He doesn't go immediately back to Nazareth. He ventures out into the Judean desert. In fact, it tells us the Spirit led him to the desert. In fact, in the Greek, it can be translated that the Spirit pushed him into the desert. And it's there in the Judean wilderness where Jesus will spend the next 40 days and 40 nights fasting and praying in preparation for his ministry. He knows he's about to begin. The time has finally come for him to begin doing what he's been sent to do. And what has Jesus been sent to do? I think you can sum it up in one sentence. He's come to usher in the kingdom of God. It's what the prophets have been foretelling for hundreds of years. They've been prophesying that there's coming a time at the end of the age when God himself will come and he will reign, not even only just over Israel, he will reign over the earth. And he'll usher in a a rule of peace and righteousness. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this. It's what we sing every Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. He rules the world in truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his love and righteousness. Whatever, whatever. It's my favorite Christmas song, but... But this is what Jesus fulfills ultimately when he wins his atoning victory on the cross and is vindicated by his Father at his resurrection. And at the end of Matthew, he says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me, fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 2. Jesus is now reigning king. He's not Lord to come. He's not Lord elect. He's not Lord one day. He's Lord right now. Reigning over all. And the question is, will we come under his authority and live in covenantal loyalty to our king? That's, that's the question. That's the gospel. And that's the invitation of the gospel. So Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He's come to announce the kingdom of God, to embody the kingdom of God, to show us, in other words, what the kingdom of God looks like, and to enact it. So this is what he's praying about. But the question is, how are you going to go about it, Jesus? We know what the mission is, to bring the kingdom, but there's all kinds of maybe ways and approaches that he could potentially take. I mean, in some way, this is... This is what churches even today continue to wrestle with. How exactly do we participate in advance the kingdom of God? So this is what Jesus is praying about. How? And at some point, we're told that the devil comes to Jesus in the wilderness. But how do you picture that? Like when you picture this story, when you imagine this story in your mind's eye, what do you see? Do you see Jesus in a cave as he's praying and somewhere along the way, walking across the desert, comes a guy in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. And he meets Jesus and says, pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. Hello, I'm the devil. I'm here to tempt you. Shall we begin? Are you hungry? Turn these stones to bread. Worship me. I'll give you the world. No? Well, fancy throwing yourself off a top tall building. I've got to tell you, I don't think that's precisely how it went down yes the devil comes to jesus but a whole lot more subtly than that because that's not a temptation how does the devil come to jesus well i think the devil comes to jesus the same way he comes to you disguised as a good idea the devil comes to jesus disguised as a good idea now i want you to notice in this story nowhere does the devil attempt to suggest that Jesus renounce his mission and his identity. Jesus knows his mission. The voice at his baptism told him, this is who you are, you're my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And from the very beginning, it's been pronounced over him, my mission is to bring salvation to the earth. The devil leaves that uncontested that the nature of these three temptations are not about the end goal. It's not about the mission. The nature of the three temptations is what means are you going to use to accomplish this? How are you going to go about accomplishing this mission? That's what the temptation has to do with. So as Jesus prepares to begin his ministry, he faced a trilogy of dark temptations. Now, before we look at each of the invitations individually, I want to say a few things about them. Real quickly, I want to say three things about these temptations as a whole. First of all, we must recognize that for Jesus, these are real temptations. Jesus is not playing charades. He's not going through the motions. These are legitimate temptations. For Jesus, if you've ever been tempted, it's only because there's at least part of you that might be inclined to go along with it. So these are legit temptations. Second thing is that these temptations are indeed disguised as good ideas. You can't tempt a good person with a bad idea. You can't tempt a good person with a wicked idea. You can tempt wicked people with wicked ideas. You can't tempt a good person with a wicked idea. If you've got a person who is genuinely and wholeheartedly committed to goodness, the only idea that could potentially work for evil is good. The devil certainly knew he wasn't going to get anywhere with Jesus by tempting him to become a, a bank robber or something. The devil understood that Jesus could only be tempted with good or at least apparent good ideas. But there's got to be a thorough disguise for the suggestion. Uh, From one angle, it's got to look like a good idea. And then finally, what we're going to see is that Jesus was able to discern that these three good ideas were in fact the devil's ideas. And that's where we see Jesus doing his Jesus thing, looking beyond the surface into the heart of the matter. And that is so much easier said than done. That kind of discernment is rare and uncommon. So let's get started with these three temptations. Now I'll tell you here at the beginning, there's all kinds of ways to preach this story. You'll hear me preach on this story again, I'm sure, and I'll probably preach it much differently. It's, it's so rich with meaning. And so you kind of have to pick and choose. What am I going to emphasize today? And so we're going to do it in a particular way today. And right from the beginning, um, I'm going to give you the three temptations in six words. Two words each. I'm going to give you the three temptations, the essence of the three temptations in six words. You ready? Are you ready? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Number one, feed everyone. Number two, liberate everyone. Number three, Persuade everyone. Man, those are some good ideas. Feed everyone. Liberate everyone. Persuade everyone. I mean, who wouldn't agree? Those are some really good ideas. But there's a devil that lurks in each one of them that Jesus is able to discern. So let's look at the first temptation, number one. This is is where Jesus is tempted to turn stones to bread. But, But, folks, what we need to see is It's not just simply the temptation to satisfy his own hunger, right? there's There's meaning behind this that's much deeper than just, oh, I'm hungry, I'll make myself a sandwich. Remember, he's contemplating the kingdom of God and his mission and what he's about to do. So for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus has been in the wilderness going without food. He's been fasting for 40 days. I cannot imagine what a feat that is, to fast for 40 days. I'm gonna be upfront with you I've never attempted to fast 40 days I probably never will unless the voice of God tells me to do so and so he's famished he can feel the pain of hunger but but his personal hunger is a connecting point to the hunger in the world and the felt needs of his society so The devil comes to Jesus with this first temptation. But as Jesus is praying, we can see it this this way. As he's praying, as he's reflecting upon what he's about to do, he says, all right, the kingdom of God, that's what I've come to bring. But there's a lot of hunger out there. I can feel it in my own self. I know what cruel hunger is like. So the kingdom of God, I'll make it all about feeding everyone. Because poverty and and that kind of injustice, that kind of pain, it's so horrible, it's so wrong, it's so dehumanizing. So I will put everything, all my effort, all my energy, all my time, I will invest it in just feeding everyone. And then he responds to that idea and he says, no, because it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. So watch this. Here's the essence of the first temptation. I need you to give me some time and space to develop this because I feel like I'm walking on a tightrope with this one. It's a very difficult one. So here's the first temptation, the essence of it. The first temptation is the temptation to take the kingdom of God and to make it entirely about social justice or we can say it this way, it's the temptation to make the kingdom of God entirely about meeting all of the felt needs and addressing all of the social ills and problems of society. That's the essence of the first temptation, to make the kingdom of God all about acts of justice and to call it the kingdom of God. So here are these people feeding hungry people, these people are helping the poor, these people are housing the homeless, these people are digging water wells in Africa for clean water. All of that's the kingdom of God, someone might say. Now listen, all of those things that I just mentioned, feeding the hungry, helping the poor, feeding the, housing the homeless, digging water wells, all of that kind of thing, those are all good and essential things that flow from God's heart that can absolutely be extensions of kingdom work. That's why hundreds of years ago, did you know that it was Christians who started the world's first hospitals? It was Christians who started the world's first charities. It was Christians who started the world's first feeding programs, the world's first orphanages, and on and on it goes. All of these things exist in the world. We take them for granted, but the only reason they exist is because of Christ and his movement over the last 2,000 years. And that's why here in America, so many of our charities and organizations that are working to meet felt needs, so many of them, that maybe even the majority of them, vast majority of them, are either Christ-centered organizations or. When they were originally founded long ago, they were founded as Christ-centered organizations. But at some point along the way, they pushed Christ out of the center, pushed him to the margins, maybe even pushed him out of the picture. And a decision was made that, you know, why do we even need any of this faith, religious emphasis, this Christian emphasis? Let's just forget about all of that and focus on being good people and doing good things in the world. What I think people don't understand is that when we push Christ out of the center and out of the picture, yes, we might still be doing good things for the moment, but over a long period of time, I'm talking over generations and centuries, there's no longer anything to sustain our vision for what goodness even is. We have no solid moral foundation to stand on. We're building our house on the sand, rather than building our house on the rock, and eventually it collapses. So, people feeding the poor, feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, all of these good, wonderful things, they can actually, absolutely be extensions of kingdom work, but they're not synonymous with the kingdom of God. Because watch this, the kingdom of God has a king named Jesus. And King Jesus, if we're following him, will tell us to feed the hungry. King Jesus will tell us to take care of the poor, to house the homeless, to take care of the disadvantaged, the least of these. Matthew 25, parable of the sheep and goats. All of these things are dear to his heart. And Jesus himself is going to feed the hungry. One of his greatest miracles is when he multiplied the loaves and the fish to feed the multitudes. But listen, the very next day, the crowd comes back because they want him to do it again. And what does he say? Eat my flesh. And drink my blood because Jesus is the Word of God and man cannot live by just simply bread alone we need the Word of God Christ the Word incarnate we need him we're not animals we're human beings made in the image of God and we have a soul that must also be fed amen so you can say that the first temptation is essentially. The move to circumvent the first great commandment and jump directly to the second commandment. What are the first first and second great commandments? Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, the entire witness of Scripture will tell you you don't really love God. Because John will tell you, how can you say you love God who you can't even see and not love your neighbor who's standing right in front of you? But you see, the flip side of that, there can also be this idea that why do we even need this God stuff? Why, why do we even need to worship God and, and have any kind of religious faith or component? We can just, without all of that, we can still be good people and do good things in the world. That's the first temptation. Now here at Village, we're deeply connected and deeply invested in meeting the felt needs of our community and the world around us. That's why we're partnered with organizations like World Vision, Christ-centered organization. We've got people out there running marathons today to support World Vision. And Gleanings for the Hungry, another wonderful organization we're connected to. Today, this weekend, ends our socks and underwear drive for the poor of Tijuana, which you guys gave amazingly well to, like incredibly well. Lena's been telling me the last two weeks, please take this out of the bulletin. They're giving too much. And then next month, we, we got another initiative to feed homeless youth here in Los Angeles. And all throughout the year, we've got things like that planned. We're deeply um, committed to that. But we also do this thing where we gather together on the first day of the week, and we sing songs of worship, and we hear scripture, and we lift our hands, and we worship the Lord our God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because it's out of that formation that arises this deep commitment to imitate Jesus in feeding the poor. But it's our worship. It's, it's keeping Christ preeminent in our lives. That's what fuels and sustains our vision and our participation in our just treatment of our neighbors over a long period, centuries and millennia. So what I fear for a society like ours, a, a secular society that says we can be good people and do good things apart from worshiping a good God, I don't think people understand we are as a society we are borrowing from inherited christian capital like whatever care and concern as a society we have for the least of these whatever care we have for the poor or the hungry or the homeless in america that is a result a direct result of christ in his movement People did not think like this before Christ came into the world. It's because of Christ, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, it's, it's because of Christ that we have any care for these things. So whatever collective vision we have for what goodness even is, it's because we've been informed about that by the light of Christ. We're borrowing from inherited Christian capital, and we're spending it quickly. Like, almost like literally, actually. And eventually it'll run out and it'll leave us in this morally bankrupt dystopia here in the Western world. So that's the first temptation. Number, number two, the second temptation. This is where the devil takes, I'm going to follow Luke's order, by the way. Uh, I'm not going to follow Matthew's order. It's just going to make for a smoother sermon. But the devil takes Jesus to a high mountain in the Judean desert and he shows him, it says, he shows him the kingdoms of the world. And it's from there that Jesus can see the the great parade of history. In his mind's eye and his imagination, he can see the great parade of history floating on by. Even way off in the distance, literally, he could probably see the horizon of Jerusalem as he's looking west. But he sees this great parade of history going by, and Jesus understands that history has largely been a parade of mighty empires that have trampled over the little people of the world. We've seen over and over again mighty kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Alexander and Antiochus and Augustus and so many others, but the vast majority of the people of the ancient world, they're the ones suffering under the weight of these empires. They're the ones who are being oppressed and exploited by these empires. And so the essence of the second temptation is, let's set these people free. Let's let's liberate the oppressed. Now, setting the captives free, liberating the oppressed, it's a good idea. In fact, it's part of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 61, his messianic vision, set the captives free, liberate the oppressed. That's a good idea. We don't want people to be oppressed. We don't want them to be exploited and all of those types of things. But the question is, how are we going to go about it? How, Jesus, how are you going to go about this? The quickest way to do it would be to kill all of the bad guys. And so in Jesus' world, you know, it was Rome who was, Rome, you got Rome here occupying our land. The Romans are occupying God's people in God's land. We got to get rid of these people. What are they doing here? This arrogant military superpower, they're inhabiting our land. We got to drive them out. And if Jesus wanted to, he could have raised up an army. How many of you believe Jesus could have raised up an army if he wanted to? Without a doubt. If he can convince a bunch of guys to leave their fishing business and leave their tax booths and follow them around Galilee for a few years, he could have started a, a great big militia with no problem. I'm convinced, in fact, that with Jesus' charisma, with his brilliance, and with his miraculous power, <laughs> he could have been the greatest military general ever he would have left Alexander the Great in the dust. And Jesus justifiably could have said, the Roman Empire is evil. Look at what they're doing. They're they're taxing people sometimes up to 90% of their income. Look how oppressive this empire is. This is evil. We should drive them out. In fact, that's what we're going to do. Let's get them all together. Let's hand out swords. We're going to drive the Romans out of here. No doubt we'll end up, Killing a bunch of them along the way, but that's just what we're gonna have to will, be willing to do. Because, you know, Pontius Pilate, he's not gonna take this lying down. Pilate's gonna fight back. So we'll have to take care of Pilate. We'll have to kill Pilate. But, it might, you know, after we do that, we get this thing going, we might as well keep going and get to the root of this thing. No use just pulling the weeds on the surface. Let's get to the root that's causing all of this, and once we take care of Pilate, we'll march all the way to Rome. We'll take care of Caesar too. We'll just kill him and overthrow the whole thing, and then we'll just have the kingdom of God and liberate everybody, hallelujah. And then Jesus saw through it, and he said, no, that would be to bow down to Satan. That would be to bow down to Satan. Now when Jesus spreads out his arms on the cross and is crucified. This is his coronation ceremony where he's literally crowned. But he's crowned king of the universe. And 3 days later when he's resurrected it's his father's vindication. And that's why at the end of Matthew Jesus is able to say all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. We we need to get that in our minds. Jesus is king of all. He's re- he's reigning and ruling right now. But listen, Jesus always reigns in the way of the cross. Jesus always reigns through self-sacrificial, others-oriented, Calvary-like love. That's what power looks like in the kingdom of God. And the second temptation is the temptation to renounce the cross and to take up Caesar's sword. All to do good, do you understand? Our cause is just. It's the temptation of the ring of power. For you Lord of the Rings fans. If Jesus had just become Jesus the Great and started a war against Rome, all, even to do good things, and even if he had accomplished good things in the end, it would have just been meet the new boss, same as the old boss. He would have just become another Alexander the Great, another Caesar Augustus. But King Jesus has his own agenda and his own vision. It's just, and it's peaceable. And yes, it will feed the hungry, and it will liberate the oppressed, but first and foremost, it worships God. And Jesus sees through this second temptation as an attempt to shortcut the way of God and to bow down and say, I'm going to accomplish the Lord's mission, but I'm going to use the devil's tools to do it because the end justifies the means. And the lesson of the second temptation is the end never justifies the means. The means are the end in the process of becoming. Let that sink in. The means are the end in the process of becoming. Third temptation. The third temptation, Jesus is taken to Jerusalem. But, but remember, he's still in the desert. So this is all occurring in his imagination. You know, some, sometimes the devil can take you somewhere in your mind. And so in his mind, Jesus sees himself in Jerusalem. And the most prominent building, of course, is the temple. And there's one particular corner of the temple. It's like the pinnacle. It's the tallest point, And it's where they would blow the shofar And they would call people to come and and people would gather by the masses underneath below and and they would have their prayers. And so Jesus sees himself in his imagination. He sees himself standing on the pinnacle of the temple, the most um, prominent place in Jerusalem. And he sees below him the hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands, thousands of people gathered below. And the thought comes to his mind, just throw yourself off. Throw yourself off because you know your angels are going to come and rescue you. And you will wow these crowds. They'll be amazed. You'll give them an experience they'll never forget. You'll change their lives. They will tell their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids about that one day when they witnessed this great angel rescue with their own eyes. And they'll say to one another, they'll say to themselves, no doubt about it, he's the Messiah. Nobody can question that. And you'll persuade everyone through this sensationalist, empiricist method And Jesus responds and says, no, it is also written, you don't test God like that. You don't attempt to prove God, test God, prove God in that fashion. So the temptation, this third temptation, according to Luke's order, this third temptation is really the temptation to use a mechanism to persuade everyone and eliminate faith. Just eliminate faith. Faith's hard. Like, how many of you, like, ever have times in your faith journey where you even have trouble just believing? You don't have to raise your hands. I know, I know, I know you all do. Where it's like, God, I'm just having trouble believing. Just convince me. Do something right now. It'd be so much easier, God, if you could just do something convince me right now. I've known, like, in my life, I've known atheists who who will say things like, you know, well, I one day I went into my backyard and I said, God, if you're real, like I don't believe in you, but if you're real, just prove it right now. Do something I can't deny. Do something that, uh, that I can't reject that'll just prove to me once and for all that you're real. And they'll say, well, nothing happened. You know, a dog barked, but nothing happened. So I know God isn't real or, or whatever. And I would just say you can't test God like that. That's not how it works. There are two sides to this coin. This is the As I said a moment ago, this is the sensationalist and the empiricist temptation. In other words, it's the temptation to attempt to prove everything by either miracle or science. I suppose if God wanted to, he could just make everybody believe. He could just snap his fingers and make every atheist believe and make doubt impossible and make atheism impossible. But God cannot make doubt and atheism impossible without taking away what it means to be authentically human, made in God's image, because that requires authentic freedom. God could just make everybody believe and just go to somebody and say, here, you're going to believe, boom, I believe. You're going to love me, boom, I love you. But that would be like God dancing with a mannequin. You know, that's kind of a sad image. If you kind of picture like a sad, lonely man Dancing with a mannequin because he can't get someone to love him of their own accord. And God's not going to do that. God will wait. God will be patient. The irresistible and the irrefutable are two things in God's arsenal that God cannot use because it would undo God's project. That's basically C.S. Lewis right there. God has to work with the gentlest of touch. He'll call us. He'll draw us. He'll beckon us. He'll coax us to believe. But God doesn't want to dance with a mannequin. He wants each one of us of our own accord to respond in faith. And to believe upon him and to come to love him of our own choice, our own volition. To remove all doubt, to remove all room for doubt, is to remove any capacity for authenticity. If God were to eliminate all doubt, that would also mean he's eliminated you. And he's turned you into a mannequin. So when I look at this story, i got to tell you, I love this story. I love meditating on this story. And first of all, I got to say, like, I'm impressed with the devil. These are good temptations. These are really good ideas. I would have fallen for every one of them. I would have gone 0 for 3. With every temptation, I would have said, man, that's a great idea. I'm on board. So I'm impressed with the devil, but that shows you how much more impressed I am with Jesus. Because Jesus went 3-0. and He overcame each one of them. He's the best. He's got 100% discernment. And I'm really serious when I tell you I would have fallen for all three of these temptations. And I'll tell you why. It's because I've eaten from the forbidden fruit. I've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I tend to think about myself, hey, good and evil, no problem. I can tell the difference. Good person, not so good person. Terrible person. Good idea, bad idea. This comes from God. This comes from the enemy. You know, line it all up. I can have a full-time judging business. I can make a living judging. That's how confident I am in my ability to discern good from evil and what comes from God and what comes from the devil. But it's stories like this one that cause me to have just a little bit of saving (laughs) self-doubt and to realize, you know what, maybe I'm not so good at discerning good and evil. And here's the sermon in one sentence. I'll give you the sermon in one sentence. I can only learn to see correctly when I see by the light of Christ. If I'm going to be able to discern consistently what comes from the devil and what comes from God, I have to do it by looking steadfastly at Jesus, following Jesus, focusing on Jesus. I can't trust myself to verify by myself What is a good idea and what is a bad idea? I have to test everything by the light of the life of Christ. In the three great refusals, Jesus refuses to do good things in the wrong way. The devil's temptation strategy was to keep Jesus' mission intact but to try to get Jesus to attempt to accomplish that mission in ways that would dehumanize and depersonalize people and turn human beings into objects to use, manipulate, or coerce. And it's the same tactic he uses with us. We know what our mission is. Our mission is to make disciples of the Jesus way. To make disciples of the nations to teach people how to become an apprentice of Jesus Christ, to participate with the Holy Spirit in spreading the good news that Jesus is king and to invite people to come under the reign of Christ. That's our mission. That's what we want to do. We want to see more and more people become followers of Jesus. Amen. Amen. But how do we go about it? There are all kinds of ways to do that. And when we begin to adopt ways of accomplishing that, that depersonalize people, that treat them as consumers, that just attempt to stamp out disciples like a cookie cutter, when we attempt to see people and use people and manipulate them and even coerce them into the faith, no matter how well we do it, and no matter how much good is accomplished, it's not the Jesus way, because you can't do the Lord's work using the devil's tools and ideas. And let me tell you, the devil's got some brilliant ideas. He's got brilliant ideas for pastors and churches. He's got some really good-sounding ideas, and people fall for it all the time. But every time we embrace ways other than the ways of Christ, where we manipulate people in events that short-circuit personal relationships and intimacies and love, we're doing the devil's work. If the kingdom of God looks like Christ on the cross, then the way the kingdom spreads also looks like the cross self-denying, others-oriented, Calvary-like love. That's not only how our salvation is won, it's also how God works through us to win a lost, dying world. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.